0: Tundra Talk is brought to you by Frontier Outfitters and Sentry Hardware, your locally owned source for hunting, fishing, and shooting gear in interior Alaska. They sell proven gear that'll tackle whatever Alaskan tasks you need it to, and Frontier always stays current with gear for the season. Whether you're baiting bears in the spring, fishing, camping, or dip netting in the summer, you're looking for game bags and moose camp gear in the fall, uh, if you need to stock up on trapping lures or just get everything you need to go ice fishing, they've got you covered. They always carry a wide variety of Alaskan-proven clothing and boots, camping gear, meat processing supplies, guns, ammo, reloading and shooting supplies, as well as camping gear and backpacking food. Downstairs in Sentry Hardware, you'll find a full hardware store naturally, and uh, you'll also find your snow machine, ATV, and marine accessories down there. They go out of their way to stock plenty, plenty of quality, useful equipment. And whether you're gearing up for a hunting or fishing trip, working on a never-ending home improvement project, or anything in between, it's usually a one-stop shop. Frontier Outfitters is located on 3rd and Old Steese in Fairbanks, and they have a second location in North Pole, so make sure you stop in next time you need to gear up. This episode of Tundra Talk is also brought to you by Hedgecock Group realtor Rick Lindsay, a guy that can take care of just about any of your real estate needs in the Fairbanks area. Now, the Hedgecock Group has been in Fairbanks North Pole real estate market since the early 80s, and their service is tailored to meet the diverse needs of home buyers in interior Alaska. Now, Rick has lived in Fairbanks for a long time and understands a lot of the less obvious ins and outs of buying and selling property around here. You know, things like water-holding tanks and permafrost and all that jazz. Fairbanks is a really unique place to live, and having a realtor that knows what to look for in a quality place can make all the difference. Rick's a Marine Corps veteran and will work hard to get you exactly what you need. And if you're looking to buy or sell real estate in the Fairbanks or North Pole area, reach out to Rick at 907-378-6780. And go check out his Instagram, at R-L-I-N-D-S-E-Y 113 at R Lindsey one thirteen. He's really a passionate outdoorsman. He's just like us. He's one of us. And he loves to share his adventures on there. And he's got a pretty a pretty nice cranker of a RAM that I'm jealous of. So go check him out. I know there's lots of you out there that dream of moving to Alaska, but it's a big step and can be kind of intimidating. Landing a solid job before you move can make things run a lot smoother, but you might not be sure of the job market or even really where to look. Now, if you're an experienced ASC certified or GM factory trained technician, I've got good news for you. Chevrolet GMC of Fairbanks is looking to hire qualified service department techs, and they've got enough work to keep you pretty much as busy as you want to be. Fairbanks Chesby has a very busy shop, but they allow for flexible scheduling. They offer top market pay rates with paid overtime, a great benefits package with 401k retirement plan with contribution matching, and you know, for a service tech, you can really make a good solid living. They, they can offer relocation assistance to help get you up here, paid training to get you spun up, and they have a well-lit and well-maintained facility. And these are all things that I mean help contribute to a great work atmosphere. On top of all that, they make it a priority to allow you to take your vacation time during hunting season, something that is really tough in the in the service and construction industries here in Fairbanks and can sometimes be a deal breaker for folks like us. Good help and hard workers are always welcome in Fairbanks, and if this is the opportunity you've been waiting for, apply at FairbanksChevy.com or call their service manager, Rick Lindsey, directly at Uh Uh 907-215-6444. That's how you do it. All right, welcome back to Tundra Talk everybody. I'm Tyler Freel and I'm really excited this morning to sit down with uh, the I don't know, the original one of the original sheep guys, <laughs> Mr. Wayne Heimer, who uh, I I finally got around to 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 re- finishing his book um, uh, doll sheep what like oh. an idiot, I don't have it in it's front of me. It's Dalshie
1: Management Alaska from Pleistocene, Pleistocene to present. To, yep, to present. It's a remarkably short book
0: <clears throat> considering the time period. <laughs> yeah, and all the details. Well, I noticed that in there, there's a lot of that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> lines in there um, from different directions of the way you could take things, but um, yeah, I met I met you a long time ago. I'm st- I still think of myself as a kid, but when I was basically a kid, just Getting real passionate about sheep hunting. You're and much I, more
1: substantial
0: now. Yes, <laughs> in every way. <laughs> in every way, yeah. Growing out too, yeah. but uh, I, I was I, thinking influence wise. Influence wise, well, <laughs> that's that may be debatable, but um, hopefully, growing a little wiser too in some ways. But uh, I always remember, yeah, I always remember my uncle, my uncle Jerry. So oh, yeah, Wayne's Wayne's the sheep guy. Wayne's the sheep guy. So you know getting into your book, um, the notable thing I liked, you referenced the Elmer Keith, hell, I was there. (laughs) And, uh, so, I mean, it's probably, you know, you could state it better than I can, but you're, you know, you're pretty much the only, the only last man standing for people who were there through the beginning of like active sheep management in Alaska. Right. I'm afraid so. No, I'm
1: happy to say. Happy
0: to say. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. And so, uh, so why why don't you give me just a yeah, kind of an over, overview of of when like when active sheep management starts and what what like we mean because you go to define like specifically what management means and because uh, everyone gets yeah. it, gets their own ideas you know
1: that's probably the the better place to start is yeah. you know what management means as you say everybody has their own definition and I've worried about it for fifty years and I finally got it. Yeah, <laughs> And I think everyone should embrace my definition. But I think uh, management, and I believe this will work for whether you're in human resources, where your goal is happy, productive people, or business, or finance, where your goal is to make profit. Uh, you got to know what your goal is. And I think management is, in the generic sense, and it comes right on down to wildlife management, is intervening in any established system to produce or maintain or expand a predefined benefit, which is what the goal is all about. So the trick, then, if you want to go from that general management definition to specifically wildlife management, is to figure out what the goal is. And to figure out what the goal is, I'm sorry, is not up to me. Yeah. <laughs> or anybody else that think might have a desire for resource direction or management. Because that goal is articulated in the Constitution of the state of Alaska and the first laws that gave force to the concepts of the Constitution. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I don't get to make that up.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you,
1: know, you know, it's to uh, manage and to intervene as necessary, you know, to maintain or enhance or expand or develop, you know, the doll sheep resources of the state for human use.
0: Yep. And in that's a, kind of and the that goes of, For all, all the wild the yeah. wildlife of the state, and, basically, right? And
1: specifically, as the first laws at statehood began to give force to the constitutional concept, uh, the very specific language is that the manager is the commissioner.
0: And mm-hmm. of
1: course, he has his minions in the Department of Fish and Game that actually do the work. He's got other big fish to fry. Yeah. Uh, the, the enabling statutes for the commissioner's office say what his job is. And his job is to maintain, enhance, expand, and protect the natural fish and wildlife resources of the state of Alaska in the best interest of the economy first and general well being of the state second. Um, so, actually, the commissioner doesn't get to define his job either.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's just giving it. And I, it's uh, anytime you're having a conversation about. I, mean, I don't know. Basically, any management topic, um, you know that that considering what the goal is, is often like you have people arguing, having basically different, you know, competing conversations. They're they're trying to argue about management when they're they have totally different ideas in their head of what that means and what the goal yeah. is.
1: I started with fish and game fifty years ago, give or take.
0: Yeah,
2: uh,
1: and nobody. At that point, suggested I read the Constitution, or that I read the enabling mm-hmm. legal statutes. Uh, in those days, management was just kind of setting seasons and bag limits, yeah, and thinking you were doing the right thing. Uh, you know, over the course of adventures I had in you know sheep management and research, uh, I began to think about those things, but it didn't really tumble to what it was about until I was transferred from active management to federal hatred.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that that happened as a result of Anilka and the federal takeover of management in the state. My job wasn't actually defined as federal hatred. I, yeah. <laughs> no, that was... It was to resist the illegal takeover of fish and game management by the federal government, which is generated through a really expansive interpretation of the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, Anilka. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that baby has just gone so far beyond what the text of the law says. It's, it's head shaken. Yeah. Well, and,
0: and I guess, you know, we could, and you know, dive into that a little later. Well, well I mean, we might as well do, do it now and then move on to the fun stuff. But, uh, you know, so Anilka and I, I, a lot of people, you—it's common to hear about it and hear of like federal, you know, federal state conflict and conflict for between you know hunters and agencies like the National Park Service, especially um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I mean, to <laughs> there's almost like a tier level of of how bad the interactions are, and uh, but you know why? I in your book you kind of laid it out as the way it started is it was a we understand a trade-off for getting the pipeline. Right. Correct. Um,
1: yeah, the whole business actually started in the North Sea by Great Great Britain. No. <laughs> the uh, you know, the Eastern Seaboard in the United States yep. was getting a lot of its oil from the North Sea production, offshore North Sea production in the North Sea, being that North Atlantic. Yep. Where there's a lot of oil in there for a while. Well, that was beginning to decline. And the eastern seaboard was running out of oil. So we needed we're looking around for some place to get more petroleum. So the about that time, you know, Prudhoe Bay gets discovered and Alaska's got this fantastic resource. Mm-hmm. And where they really needed the petroleum was on the eastern seaboard. Well, Prudhoe Bay's a long ways long from way. there. <laughs> So to get the oil to market where it could begin to satisfy demand, um uh, the the first effort, the first idea, and there's a great book called uh, Breaking Ice for Alaskan Oil, which tells the story of the second Manhattan Project. Interesting. You might think the first Manhattan Project had something to do with Fat Man and Little Boy and yeah. an Atomic Bomb. Uh, it did. But the second Manhattan Project was a, a research effort, if you want to call it that, by Humble Oil who had the the notion that you could run ice-breaking tankers through the Northwest Passage and get oil to the eastern seabird mm. from the Arctic. So what uh, Humble Oil did was they bought uh, this—the uh, Manhattan was the name of the ship. Okay. It was a monster grain transport ship that had sort of outlived its usefulness. Well, they bought that sucker— and beefed it up and retooled it Started and it, turned it into an icebreaker, <laughs> you know? And you know it's a monster. And they thought they they thought they had it. So they took off and went up to Nova Scotia and got to the Northwest Passage that is known. And there was some ice there. And you're just going to crunch on through that. Go to Prudhoe Bay and prove it could be Fill done. Fill her up, yeah. <laughs> well, it didn't work out that well. Uh, the ice was a lot tougher, and the, and it was a lot harder than they thought. They had way more trouble than they anticipated. They put one barrel of oil on the deck and went home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) So uh, that was out. Uh, So the next obvious thing to do was build a pipeline. But there were folks that didn't think that was a wonderful idea. And those folks included the emerging environmental lobby, which was gaining influence all the time. Uh, The Democrat Party, being a little more savvy, About future things, it seems, then the Republican Party um, decided they would co-opt the environmental movement, which is why the major proponents of doing something, changing our whole lifestyle to stop global warming Mm -hmm. is a Democrat Party thing. And that started clear back, you know, in the in those days. And they were against the pipeline. Uh, and native interests were also against the pipeline at the time, particularly those on the North Slope, because they understood that building a pipeline would require a road, and that would bring outsiders into their country. That was mm-hmm. the thing. So they were against it, and so it was kind of an interesting paradox. We had the ultimate preservationists you know, leaping into bed, if you will, with the ultimate killers, yeah. the people <laughs> who were living off the land. Yeah. Uh, so they held up the pipeline. Uh, environmentally, and uh, you know Jimmy Carter happened to be the president at the time, and uh, you know the it the Anelka you know the legislation to get the pipeline done started in the House of Representatives, which is known to be a little less thoughtful mm-hmm. than the Senate. We, I guess we could see that from last week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, maybe not. I don't know. But anyway, it, it started there. And it was a really far, far, far left, uh, far conservative protectionist bill. Didn't want anything to happen. Well, the people that were in on that were the environmental lobby and their allies, the Alaska Natives that didn't want the pipeline for their reasons. So they held it up. And tweaked it and got everything just the way they wanted, including a racial preference for subsistence. And they sent that bill over to the Senate. Well, Mike Gravel and Ted Stevens were more interested in economic development than the folks over in the House. And they said, we're not having it. In those days, two senators from a state could stop
0: something interesting
1: that was affecting their state. They said, we're not having it. And Jimmy Carter essentially said to them, well— Okay, hold this up. I'm going to be so
0: nasty to you guys
1: in a year you'll be begging.
0: Not nice old friendly, you know, not Habitat for Humanity Jimmy Carter. Well, (laughs) when it it came to
1: environmental protection and maybe the party position on it, I don't know. He was a bullying shark, I think Hmm. is the term I use. Yeah. And uh, so he punished Alaska, including sheep hunting particularly, because he declared subsistence to be an antiquity, as though it were an ancient graveyard. Mm -hmm. He declared that contemporary activity to be an antiquity and said that any place subsistence was the issue, he would administratively close by executive order, so there'd be no use going on there until this got settled. Well, he
0: bullied Stevens and Gravel— so this is locking you know with the swipe of a pen, locking yeah. up tons of country you know basically from yeah. people who are running it you know executive orders if you want to, this
1: is really exciting <laughs> <laughs> executive orders uh, whether they be at the state or the the national level are you know, to my understanding of them is that they are there are three branches of government the executive the legislative and the judicial, judicial well the Executive, the chief executive is the boss of the executive branch of government, and he can't really just do any darn thing he wants. But what he can do is tell his minions in the executive branch, which includes all the federal agencies, mm-hmm. you know, what the priorities are. And, you know, when the president of the United States says no more until this is settled, no more use, you know, his minions jump. To follow that order, whether it's legal or illegal or not. I mean, you see a contemporary example. You know, this week there's some talk of maybe letting the ANWARN, our leases, which Biden canceled, which Mm -hmm. Congress had approved. Yeah. Uh, You know, um, some talk of bringing those back under very, you know, even more strict environmental constraints, which Mm -hmm. means it'll never happen. Yeah. But, uh, that's the way executive orders work, and that executive order locked up fifty um, percent of the sheep hunting in Alaska at that time. And after he had, brought, after Carter had brought Stevenson Gravel to heel, as it were, um, we began to negotiate, trying to get back as much of that as we could. Mm-hmm. And we got about we got about half of what had been taken away administratively back. Uh, and that's, uh, that was the first great loss, the first great sheep population decline in Alaska. The sheep were still there. Yeah, but the
0: opportunity but was the taken opportunity away. The opportunity
1: was taken away. And interestingly enough, and I think sheep hunters still do this behaviorally, uh, when the resource declined, the number of hunters declined.
0: Yeah, and it's happening now.
1: It's happening now, yeah. And it, it has always been, it's been that way ever mm-hmm. since 1980 yeah there's been a steady decline pretty much in sheep hunting until now we're you know less than half of what there was when we were in the golden age, yeah which people didn't realize was a golden age at the
0: time yeah yeah <laughs> exactly of
1: of sheep hunting but uh you know the the subsistence thing has just proliferated and gotten more and more complex and uh you know it would be a good idea if we didn't get me started it may be too late <laughs>
0: <laughs> well we the nice thing about this is we could talk about whatever and then we you know if we <clears throat> we can put a pin in that and just fall back to the funner stuff talking about you know you, you know your specific sheep stuff but it's i think it's very valuable to get your perspective as someone who was there was was there for all of it and well, that, saw it, saw well, it unfold
1: oh. That all happens via or through the Federal Subsistence Board. Mm-hmm. And if you look through your gift copy of Anilka, which yeah. I present you with this morning, you'll find there is no reference at all to the Federal Subsistence Board. It does not exist No, in there. And, in fact, there's a lot of verbiage in there that says why it shouldn't exist, but it still does. And, uh, you know, I would like for it to go away.
0: Yeah, well, and, and for people that understand the Federal Subsistence Board, it's not, it's not any kind of elected position, or you know, arguably, like yeah, should not should not exist in the first place. But all it is is the heads of the various federal agencies right. and a handful of is it five agency heads and three yeah, appointed,
1: the, yeah, the agency members, you know, big people mm-hmm. of the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management. And the Forest uh, Service, I think. The Forest Service. And Indian Affairs, I and think. And for some reason, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is in there. In fact, right now we're dealing with a very interesting proposal by Senator Murkowski, who has since tried to walk away from it, uh, to transfer the Federal Subsistence Board from the National Fish and Wildlife Service oversight to BLM. Or not... No, BIA, not BIA. BIA. Bureau of Indian Affairs, which interestingly takes you to a race-dominated thing that uh, when, yeah, when the original sure. bill came over to the Senate, Ted Stevens read this race-based preference and said, this is 1979. We don't do race anymore. Yeah. Well, that was 1979. <laughs> and uh, he said, so what we'll do is essentially I'm not sure – word processing had been invented by that time. but he says, we'll essentially do a global replacement of race preference with rural preference, mm-hmm. like discriminating against people because they don't live a certain place. Yeah. Was better than discriminating against them because they aren't a certain race.
0: Yeah. Uh, way to go, Ted. <laughs> yeah. I said, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, me- it seems like the more, the more you dig, the more messed up it all gets. But so yeah, the, the federal subsistence board is just these agent. The voting majority is just the heads of the agencies. Yeah. So it, all it is is the agencies. Yeah, and when you consider that
1: Anilca is really not a subsistence law, there's just one section Anilca yeah. that deals with subsistence. It's a land control law, mm-hmm. you know, which was part of the the compromise to get the oil pipeline approved. Uh, the Alaska natives got first of all got their their land claim settlement. Mm-hmm. And that's what they got out of it. And what the conservationists got out of it was the promise in the Land Claims Settlement Act that there would be a huge amount of acreage that would go into the federal conservation system units, which are the Park Service Federal Fish, Mm -hmm. Wildlife, BLM, and so forth. Uh, Anilka was all about carving up acreage and who was going to protect it. Yeah, Uh, And that's, you know, the the mandate, which kind of goes back to management, and what your definition of management is, you know, we tried to co-manage or do dual management with the feds forever, which was in my later years, I figured out was complete folly because our mandate from our constitution is maximal sustainable use. And there's is minimal use. Mm-hmm. Well, how's that going to work out? Not very well,
0: I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, in minimal, yeah, well, and people, you know, as you, as you kind of look at what's, what's going on now, what has been going on. You know the term you know i'd I'd use it as like regulation to reduce human use or regulation yeah. to keep people off the landscape um, like that's a real thing based on a different <laughs> a different goal that they you know that the a lot of the at least i don't know it seems like some of the federal agencies are, are like the park service is probably the worst or the most stringent on that um, yeah but they're you know
1: it's a it's a board and decisions are made by vote. Yeah. And when you've got people that are, have basically the same philosophy as you do, it's not as iffy as you might think.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nothing the, is
1: really up for grabs.
0: No, but uh, yeah. Well, I'm sure I'll come up with some other some other Anilka questions. But yeah, it's there's like you know there's it's quite a few hard people wonder why there's hard feelings between the states and the feds. There's a long a long history. Uh-huh. If, they, oh, only if I mean, they only knew. If they only knew.
1: As I say, I could tell you stories.
0: <laughs> yeah, well— but that's another story. That's another story. <laughs> well, why don't—I um, know—I'm sure you've told me in the past. Were you born here, or did you, did you move up here? Uh, I
1: came up here in 1967 to go to— to engage in a doctoral program in environmental physiology, whatever that is, yeah. <laughs> at the University of Alaska. When I think I was the second or third cohort of people to go through the Institute of Arctic Biology up there on the West Ridge. Oh, wow. So there had been a cohort or two maybe a, a little ahead of me. But uh, I came up here to be a environmental physiologist, whatever that, which meant studying the adaptations of animals to their environment, mm-hmm. which is driven my thinking ever since i've never recovered <laughs> yeah
0: well that's you know and you know as you go through your book and talk about your research that d- definitely seems like a different perspective than a lot a lot of uh, you know the established thinking in fishing game at the time
1: yeah it was uh you know my thinking was if we were if we're going to manage uh we can do whatever we think we know, but if we're not managing within the envelope of adaptations that have been successful for doll sheep, we're not going to do real well. Yeah. So I figured my job originally, I started with fish and game as a sheep research guy. My job was, I thought to understand the the adaptations of sheep to their environment so that we didn't screw up Mm -hmm. when we were into what to manage it to allocating or regulating or whatever we're going to do. And uh, that sort of, drove me, and I inherited a wonderful program. The guy that had been the sheep biologist ahead of me, a guy named Jim Erickson, mm-hmm. was magnificent. Um, the guy ahead of him was not quite so magnificent.
0: He, he was uh, he was the guy on the Kenai, right? Because yeah, that's kind of where sheep management in Alaska started, wasn't it? Is, it
1: is, yeah. There had been uh, sheep on the Kenai are in a sort of tenuous position because they live on the Kenai Peninsula, mm-hmm. which means a bunch of land that sticks out in the middle of the ocean. Uh, and sheep that live where they can see the ocean are not really in a happy, stable place because ocean weather is so fickle. You get a lot of snow, you get some rain, you get a lot of ice, food gets to be limiting, and, you know, they are pretty erratic fluctuations wherever, uh, you know, sheep can see the ocean. Yeah,
0: and sheep kind of, and for their, you know, is a little bit of background, sheep are, you know, they're the most, I mean, tedious times for them or their, win- you know, winter Probably, and they're dependent on windblown country to access their food.
1: Yeah, and they typically live on the windblown sides of mountains. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, unless, of course, you've got the ocean right in here, in which case they don't live there because it's not suitable habitat. But they were kind of getting by on the Kenai, and they do well, particularly when predators were suppressed. And they would build up, and then they would crash and build up and crash, And the fellow that uh, was the first recognized sheep biologist, you know, was uh, also an airplane pilot and had come to Alaska from Hawaii, where he had worked before on those exotic imported mouflons Mm -hmm. over there a little bit. And uh, he came up here, and there had just been a crash on the Kenai, and he flew his airplane up there and saw that, sure enough, things weren't like they were. And they began to worry about whether or not there had been too many sheep for the food. Okay, carrying so, capacity. Theory.
0: Yeah, and you, yeah, you hit on that. Like that was a big. It still is. It, and yeah, it's, still it's
1: a, is. It's a very useful notion where conditions fit, mm-hmm. uh, or conditions don't fit. It just gets you in trouble.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, like in, and you know, you that's kind of a recurrent theme that it for doll sheep in Alaska that. They're not a lot of places that they're not necessarily ever even in at carrying capacity, or people make maybe made assumptions that that they yeah. that problems were due to being at carrying capacity.
1: Yeah, well, that's a reflect was is was and probably still remains a reflexive action on the part of wildlifeers,
0: mm-hmm. wildlife
1: biologists, people trained in wildlife, because you really get a a huge dose of carrying capacity theory when you are studying wildlife management, uh, and basically that theory says that. Food is limiting to everything in the, in the end, and that's probably true. Uh, but uh, the symptoms are that uh, you, know, you don't have babies as soon, and the babies are little and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we found in doll sheep was that there was no indication that we were at nutritional carrying capacity, but there were some very strange things happening in the populations that mimicked the carrying yeah. the symptoms of carrying capacity being over overdone. Uh, eventually, we figured out that the way we were managing ram hunting was probably the contributing factor. There, uh, did a comparative study one time of sheep out in Dry Creek, which was the main study area mm-hmm. I inherited. Big lick down there, you could catch sheep for pennies. Yeah, you know the cost of a canvas neck band with a number on it was, and a you know we we'd catch them in what's called a drop net. Mm-hmm. And this is the, yeah, the detail no, in the book. No,
0: I I want to, yeah, this yeah. this is one of the things that I think is really fascinating how you guys like talk about like catching and even as much as how the hell you deal with deal with a sheep, you know, in a net and keep them, yeah. you know, cuz they're no they're kind of sensitive. You don't want to hurt them, you don't no, want them to get you injured, you don't want them to to die as a result of of capture, you know.
1: But what uh the the technology I inherited from Gene Erickson, who stole it from the turkey trappers. Yeah, catching turkeys is the most challenging thing wildlifeers do. Apparently, or maybe catching you know bats or something might, yeah. be, <laughs> might be a bigger deal. But uh, if you want to catch turkeys, they're the fastest critter that uh, wildlifeer duck soup. I mean, you take a cannon net, which is a projectile tied to a net cannonball. Yeah, you shoot it out over them, and they're standing around, and it falls on them, and you got them. You shoot that sucker over turkeys, and they run out of front of it or fly away. they're yeah, just, they're just too fast. Huh? So the turkey trappers figured out if you could lure turkeys under a net suspended over them and drop it on them, that was the way to catch turkeys. Okay. Because um, your chances are way better. Uh, we had tried— about everything
0: we made, about every mistake. You well, could you make. talked about using like trying a sharp tail net that used like 12 gauge projectile. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the story about it, really, you know, them trying to catch sharp tails with it, ripping the bumper off the truck because it was too much juice in the. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why we didn't think to download the blanks that were thrown in <laughs> yeah. the net.
1: But, uh, yeah, we we made about every mistake you could make along the way, and eventually, uh, the drop net was the thing, and with the drop net. You, it's basically ours was about forty feet on a side. The mesh was about like a volleyball net, but the cording was much stronger. Mm-hmm. So you'd put that up on four corners on poles with one, you know, tent pole in the middle, and tie it to the top of those poles with poly rope yep. that was on the end of a rope you could crank up with a boat winch. And you'd weave into that poly, poly rope a blasting cap. When you push it together, you know, a poly rope gets hollow. Yep. Yep. Put a blasting cap in the middle of that and wire that all up to a battery. And put a salt block out in the middle of it. Sheep would come stand under there. you drop on them, and you could...
0: You're standing there like Wiley e. Coyote with the plunger <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
1: sitting, and you're blind. And when, you know, once the net falls on them, then it's mayhem. Yeah. I mean, it's used to refer to it as the big top, but the circus started once you dropped that baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, once the net falls on the sheep, they're frightened, and they're jumping around and tangling all up, and... You know, you've got to get there, and the first important thing is to make sure they've got their you know, their nose isn't down in the mud or their, mm-hmm. their neck isn't cooked so they can't breathe. So you've got to – first things to do is establish an airway for them so they can breathe, get them blindfolded, maybe yep. the first thing. Those are things that kind of happen at the same time. Then you can – it's like picking salmon out of a gill net. I mean, yeah. you've, got to, <laughs> you've got to figure out how to untangle all these Sheep that are and jumping. it's not
0: like you you don't want to cut up you can't cut up your no net. <laughs> no
1: you better not be cutting up the net unless you want to fix it yeah in the afternoon so uh, you know we the deal was to get the sheep blindfolded and get them an airway and get them hobbled and we built a quick keeper you know strap hobble of just two nylon straps riveted pop riveted together with keepers on them that you know there's kind you jerk and they're tight mm-hmm. and uh, then, if you get them out of the net, kind of put them near each other in a pile, uh, you leave one guy there to touch them so they'd remember they were caught. Yeah. And you could, you know, then you go ahead and work and put collars on, take blood, feces, and milk them if they were lactating, or yeah. measure them all over, do whatever you're doing. And uh, it, it worked. Uh, they'd be pretty calm as long as they were, were blindfolded. When you mm-hmm. took the blindfold off when you were done, they were crazed. Yeah, I mean they just take off running, which we didn't mind until one ran smack into a boulder one day and knocked herself silly for yeah. <laughs> about half an hour. We said, "Well, we could do better than that." So we eventually came up with an animal tranquilizer, and we first thing we would do while well, we're doing airways and blindfolding and what one guy go around with a veterinary syringe and just give them all a little shot, which calmed them down and made our lives a lot easier. Yeah. We didn't feel bad about what we were doing when yeah. we turned them loose. Uh, so we were able to catch lots and lots of sheep that way. Uh, usually, they do drop netting down in for bighorns down in the Canada and mm-hmm. the United States, and they like to have three people per sheep. We tried not to have more than three sheep per person. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> we just didn't have the access and the resources. Well, and you and you talked about the difference between handling, you know, what a hundred twenty pound ewe versus uh, versus a, a, a mature ram. <laughs> yeah. I, there were we
1: did this program in three places along the Alaska Range eventually. Dry Creek over near Wood River. Mm-hmm. And then we worked in the Granite Mountains just out, out of Delta there. Okay. Granite Creek. Yep. And then down at the in the toke management area at a place called Sheep Creek. Yeah. Uh, and there were mineral licks that were influential. And if you get sheep to come to you, you don't have to go chase them around. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're set up you can do some land office business. Mm-hmm. And so we did that three places. And, and this uh, is all
0: like, yeah, this is before all technology. I mean, this is like hard, hardcore field work.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's so old style. We didn't, yep. you know, radio collars had been invented, but they were too expensive yeah. and specialized. And uh, eventually we found out we didn't need them because uh, you wouldn't know ex- where the sheep was anytime you wanted to know. But they were, sheep are very traditional to their seasonal ranges and they would come back to the mineral lick like, Buzzards to Hinkley, Ohio, yeah. or swallows to Capistrano. Yeah, not on the same day, but if they were alive, they would come back, and if we were, were watching carefully, we would see them.
0: So you'd see them year after and, year. And
1: we got, you know, we followed some ewes for ten years. Wow, knew what years they had babies and what years they didn't, and uh, when they died, and how old they were, and when yeah. they perished.
0: And, and you guys did quite a bit of hiking around and to find, you know, find and found like sheep, you know, that you. would Yeah, there's a some-
1: famous. You know, book written by you know the the biologist was Adolf Miri. He didn't finish the book because he died. And his son, son's family finished the book. Yeah. But he worked in Denali Park in the thirties, nineteen thirties. We're almost to the twenty thirties. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's almost a hundred years ago. Uh, and they uh, were interested in sheep interactions with wolves. You know, that was the big deal. Mm-hmm. The way. McKinley Park was established was the concept was it was a nursery. Yeah, And it would always, if you had kept that park on as a nursery, there'd always be a production of lambs and caribou and moose that would come yeah. out of the park to supply the hunters. Well, it turned out everything stayed in the park except the wolves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we had a little wolf refugium there. They came out and ate our stuff, but the stuff yeah. we expected to come out wasn't. So the deal was, you know, should we control wolves in the nursery? And that's why Mr... Adolph Murray, Dr. Murray maybe he was, uh, went there and studied sheep. Well, he was interested in how sheep die. And so he got the what was then the Civilian Conservation Corps, out-of-work mm-hmm. guys in the Depression. Yep. And they walked sort of arm-in-arm arm through a bunch of sheep habitat and found 600 and some winter-killed or predator-killed, whatever, yeah. sheep heads. And... Uh, but they, he records in his book where he found them. And when we were, you know, we would find a sheep missing mm-hmm. that hadn't hadn't shown up for a year. We didn't know whether she was alive or just we just missed her. She left or whatever. So in our spare time, we would walk the whole countryside where we knew those sheep were looking down in the bottoms of drainages mm-hmm. and willow patches and whatever. And we found a surprising number of our marked sheep that we knew had died. Yeah. And Interesting. We knew how old they were when they stopped showing up. So we said, well, that was their age at death. Yeah. Which allows us to create a mortality table or a survivor curve that tells us how they did, how long they lived. Well,
0: you're slow over the years. I mean, you're slowly building a kind of a variety of data sets, I would think.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that was we were fortunate, uh, not just I. I mean, I had some wonderful people that worked along the way as partners. And we were fortunate in that. Uh, even though people didn't understand what the heck we were doing or what the value of it might be, we're always saying, what in the world is that guy just going sitting on his buns and uh, watching sheep in a mineral? Like, what's that all about? But uh, we were able to gather quite a lot of information. It was, you know, person intensive. Mm. You can't just go fly in and then go back to the office and work on the computer. I mean, we were out summers all day and Tried to be out in the winter as much as we could, just being there and seeing who was doing what. Uh,
0: yeah, it's and that was during the, uh, when you guys started, that was during the three quarter curl regulation time, right? Yeah, it
1: was. Uh, Alaska had inherited the three quarter curl ram harvest regulation from bighorn people in the United States.
0: Okay. And that, yeah, it was just applied as. Yeah, it was, well, yeah. <laughs> this sounds cheap, like a good enough idea. <laughs> why not?
1: Uh, well, doll sheep and bighorns aren't exactly the same.
2: No.
1: <laughs> uh, and that uh, it really didn't matter whether we even had a horn restriction or in the early days because there weren't enough people shooting enough sheep to really make any difference. Yeah. But as interest, as population grew in Alaska and as interest in sheep hunting grew, particularly in country that was accessible from military posts, mm-hmm. you know, Every GI had read Jack O'Connor yep. about sheep hunting, and they all wanted to go sheep hunting. And, you know, with what was in Fairbanks, with Eilson and Wainwright, uh, the Alaska range between Denali Park, McKinley Park in those days, and the Delta River got hammered. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there were a lot of hunters out there. I was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> took the worst sheep ever in the history of doll sheep. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and he was wearing a. I wonder if he wasn't wearing a collar as big as your head. Oh, man. <laughs> he a Red neck band with a big black 91 on Number red, 91, you got big it. Big as a dinner plate. <laughs> I had no idea I would ever end up in sheep biology at the time. I just wanted to go sheep hunting Yeah, like everybody else. And he was a magnificent specimen. He was uh, about eight years old. Measure twenty-seven
0: inches wow. with
1: eleven and a quarter inch basis.
0: Wow, I've seen I've I've seen a few of these little yeah little guys. But yeah, yeah that's, that's 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 he
1: had had lumpy jaw. <laughs> so uh, what's lumpy jaw? Lumpy jaw is a, I think a bacterial infection of the lower jaw. Mm-hmm. That bacterium is a, is around yeah all the time, and it's thought that when sheep are eating rough forage or maybe some brows that it'll get introduced below the gum. Okay, that bacterium yeah. Carinibacterium, I think is what it's, we get figured some. out it was. Uh, and uh, it's that, then the bacterium will get into the jaw and infect it and it get a big lump on okay. it. And eventually there'd be an abscess. Big cyst. Of, yeah. you, I'm sure you've seen lumpy jaw sheep that yeah. you've shot. Uh, usually they get over it. Uh, and, but it, statistically takes about a year off their life. Interesting. Because it leads to malocclusion or bad alignment of their teeth. Yeah. So they can't eat quite as well and you know, they pay the price. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, the only sheep I ever shot for fun or for <laughs> yeah. ego was the worst <laughs> ever wearing a collar and darn if he hadn't had a lumpy jaw.
0: <laughs> oh man, that's interesting. Sounded like a good one to get out of the gene pool.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, we worry a lot about the gene pool. I'm not sure it's really yeah worth as much worry as we as we do about it. Sheep have, have it. sheep have worked out the gene pool. Yeah. <laughs> for tens of thousands of years and I I'm not sure we're gonna mess it up all that
0: much. Well especially yeah which and we'll yeah, get to that especially under you know full curl regulations. Yeah. Um
1: which is part of the rationale for the full curl deal. Uh you know, sheep doll sheep become socially dominant and really physically mature at about the same time, which is when their horns are full curl and they've grown, they're eight years old. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a coincidence that all happens at the same time. And coincident with that is social dominance, which mm-hmm. has an energy cost. And they start dying at six times the rate they did between age one and age seven. Yeah, So they're falling off pretty fast. I
0: mean, I know just over 20 years of hiking around in the mountains myself and a lot, a high percentage of winter kill rams that I found are eight or nine years old. It seems like, you know, that's just kind of one anecdote, but, uh, so before we get onto that, um, you talk about some things you guys were seeing in that dry Creek population that you weren't seeing in some other areas as far as like, you know, the really young ewes having lambs and having them late. Like the symptoms that you referred to that, you know, would point some people towards carrying capacity, yeah. like there's too many sheep here. And they had tried, you know, <laughs> maybe getting ahead of myself, because they had tried, a, you know, that original guy had tried a U-hunt on the Kenai, which, you know. Yeah,
1: the, you know, when the fellow that we spoke of earlier, his name was Lyman Nichols, mm-hmm. and he did some great work, uh, and he missed some stuff. I think he was a human being. Yeah. <laughs> Never happened to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and he noticed the sheep crash on the Kenai. And, of course, everybody wanted to know, well, did they crash because there were too many on the land? Mm-hmm. So he devised an experiment to see if we could keep a, a sheep population below carrying capac- nutritional carrying capacity, mm-hmm. if there'd be so much extra grub that production and survival of lambs would be better. So he found three, three mountains that were all within sight of each other, assumed they were all the same, weather-wise and vegetatively and stuff, and said, well, okay. One was the Cooper Landing closed area, which would be no hunting. Mm-hmm. The other one was uh, Surprise Mountain, I think, which was going to be you hunted. And there was Crescent Mountain. I may have those two mixed yeah. up. Sometimes I do that in my, at my age. I do it every day. <laughs> <laughs> so." So one was to be U-hunted, one was to be three-quarter crow ram hunted, and one was to be not hunted at all. Pretty good at experimental design. Uh, so we're going to U-hunt one to keep the population below carrying capacity and see if it does better than the one where we're shooting rams or whatever, So not where we're not messing with it. And uh, as Lyman worked more and more, he found out that those mountains weren't at all the same. You know, the assumptions you'd make, they're all in the Kenai.
2: Yeah, and you can see. You all, can see from yeah.
1: one to the other, they must be the same. Well, the weather was way different between the three mountains. But uh that was just a, something that he noted. Uh, and he went ahead with the U-hunt. Uh, and that was kind of an interesting thing because the U-hunted population all vanished. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody, you know, the... The plan was very specific and thoughtful, and we're going to just take so many and whatever. And they, the but the people that lived in the neighborhood hated it. Yeah, they were really bitter because they knew mamas have babies, mm-hmm. and they
0: couldn't quite understand how they were going to have more babies with less mamas. Well, it's and it's not not a direct relationship, but it's just reminiscent of my my dad talking about when my when he was a little kid, you know. You know, my grandpa and that, it'd be like, it was like mortal sin to kill a cow moose. <laughs> yeah, or a hen pheasant. <laughs> you know, or a hen pheasant. Yeah. Yeah, that was, a,
1: but that's that the way it was. Mm-hmm. People really, the locals there had seen those sheep on Cooperland enclosed area for generations of sheep mm-hmm. and people. They kind of knew what was going on. They didn't think it was a good idea to mess with Mother Nature. And it got pretty rough and tumble down there to where. Uh, old timers that I spoke to, I now that I am an old timer, I, <laughs> I love old timers. Thank yeah. you for coming. <laughs> but I've always respected people that have been around longer and than I have. So I talked to old timers on the Kenai, and they said, "Well, it got, got a little spicy." You go out to the rifle range to find pictures of Lyman all shot. Jesus, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so
1: oh. the idea was to have a regulated hunt have people check in and check out on a check station, whatever. Well mm. check station duty is boring. <laughs> and the guys that were there from Anchorage didn't like it. They didn't like Lyman. They were bored. And there was a bar just up the hill. <laughs> and nobody was stopping by to check in or check out. So they just put it took a little piece of cardboard, painted a finger on it, said check station up at the, the bar. Up at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the the whole sheep population pretty much went away. Yeah. Nobody knows what happened to it. Uh Lyman had been focusing on those three mountains and hadn't noticed that there was another mountain not all that far away that had sheep on it. He thought there weren't any sheep on that mm. mountain. So he said, Well, I guess they all moved over to that mountain because of human disturbance. Well, who was to know? Yeah. Well, Ave Thayer was to know. Ave Thayer's a legendary fish and wildlife service guy. He's still with us, lives in the pioneers home. Uh but he was, when I knew him, he was uh, the superintendent of, the, of Anwar, Arkansas okay. National Wildlife Refuge. And, you know, I knew him a little bit. And I asked him one day, he said, well, You used to work on the Kenai. What was the story, John? He says, There were always sheep on
0: that mountain.
1: <laughs> he, <laughs> he just <laughs> hadn't noticed them. He just missed them. He was looking someplace else.
0: Oh, man.
1: So, you know, we didn't learn a great deal about carrying capacity from that opportunity down there yeah Uh, but what we did do was learn that not so good to annoy the public to the maximum degree yeah
0: Yeah, the public can is already is adequately annoyed i think
1: (laughs) and we had managed (laughs) down there and uh, they went to a local representative he went to the legislature and got the department's budget cut to punish fish and game for being so darn arrogant Uh, well that didn't leave a very good taste in the mouth of the director of the division and he had a kind of an anti-sheep bias yeah. from then on. Uh, sheep are too much trouble.
0: You know. Focus on moose and caribou and yeah. stuff that... Yeah, focus on stuff
1: used. that uh, we can make some money on. Well, yeah. it turned out we were making a lot of money on sheep Yeah, and paying no attention to them. Uh, and, you know, eventually the fellow that was ahead of me here in the Alaska range, Jim Erickson... Uh, was hired by Lyman Nichols, and they worked together for a while and then opened a satellite research or not a bad word these days uh, yeah. another comparative research project, which was out in Dry Creek at the big mineral lake there mm-hmm. where a lot of that trapping took place. yep Jim was eventually killed on a sheep survey in the Hula Hula River well before the pipeline. I don't yeah think, I have no idea what the rationale was there, but, but uh, yeah that's mistake stakes were mistakes were made and he and the pilot died so the the position was open and uh, you know I was sort of finishing up the program up at the Institute of Arctic biology and uh, my friend who I was playing city League hoops with at the time finding Tony Smith who was my first partner yeah said why don't you I wanted to stay in Alaska of course who wouldn't mm-hmm. and he said why don't you apply for that job I said down my long mitochondria stained nose at him, I said, "I'm a real scientist. I don't do wildlife." <laughs> Tony was pretty expressive, and when the air finally turned from blue to where you could see through it again, he says, "Well, you can answer questions. Can you answer questions or not?" And he called me a nasty name. Yeah, <laughs> I said, "Well, that is what this training is about." So I applied, and you know, for some reason, I'm the guy that got hired, and that's how I got in the sheep business. Uh, uh, providential, I think. Uh, you know, I, I was not a wildlifer. I'd had, of course, an ecology course or two, mm-hmm. and that sort of flirts with wildlife. But I had not been trained to think carrying capacity theory, first of all.
0: Yeah, so that, yeah, that kind of. It was, a,
1: I think, a benefit to me and I hope to sheep and to sheep hunters over time.
0: Yeah, because through, you know, your guys' research and you were, I mean, you were, I thought, I thought it was interesting going through the point of analyzing, you know, comparing these different sheep populations in very similar country, just down, just down the range a little bit, but were subjected to different, you know, hunting, hunting, uh. Hunting pressure or regulations, you know, under the three-quarter curl. like You would, you guys would send, <laughs> thought it was crazy, take you know, whole ewes and they said they had a big grinder up at the university that they would grind them up into, you know, a mixture that yeah. could be analyzed for all sorts of different things. Yeah, we
1: saw, you know, what we saw in Dry Creek, which was very heavily hunted at three-quarter mm-hmm. curl, uh, we noticed that, you know, over time, ewes only had lambs in alternate years. Uh, we also because uh, and we also noticed that ewes were having lambs at age two, and they were having them a month late, and they're not supposed to have lambs to are yeah. three or four and then have them on schedule. Uh, so those didn't look like nutritional limitations when you're breeding too early. Yeah. So that was a little bit of a puzzle. So I said, well, before and the the manager said, there's too many sheep out there. Shoot half of them. Well, sheep don't have twins. Yeah. If we wanted to maintain the same harvest opportunity that we were offering, those that didn't get shot would have to have twins. Yeah, to maintain
0: it, yeah. Not like deer or something. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen.
1: So I said, before we do that and go through the Kenai experience again with the public, why don't we do a nutritional comparison between Dry Creek and the Toke Management Area where everything was behaving as it should be? Mm -hmm. So uh, We did. And the way that worked was it it was a five-year study plan. And we'd go out when sheep were at their fattest, just about rut time, and we'd shoot five from each population over the course of each year and then go back in the spring. Mm -hmm. Then when they're at their poorest condition and should be pregnant, and we'd shoot five more. And then we would look at the quality of food in the rumen, and we would look at uh, the weight and the size and Pregnancy status and all this stuff. And to get at the nutritional thing going beyond just looking at the quality of food in the rumen, which was the same. Mm-hmm. The plants saying it were different, but the caloric output was the same. So to get get at the body condition, uh, when I was at the university at in the Institute of Art Biology, I was a mouse man. Mm-hmm. And I gave a lot of mice rides in a blender yeah. <laughs> for the project I was working on up there. So I said, well… Once a blender man, always a blender man. <laughs> yeah. So, if we really want to get at this, you know, we could look at kidney fat or marrow fat or whatever we want to look at. But to really get at it, why don't we just give these sheep a ride in a blender? Well, it's a pretty big blender. Yeah, I'd and say. And we homogenized entire sheep carcasses, except for we kept the ovaries mm-hmm. out, and if they were if they were pregnant, we kept the fetuses and did them separately, and that sort of thing. Uh, we're just careful as we could be and uh, you know that's the grinder story but yeah the answer was we could find we found that with our our whole body composition we studied fat and protein and water and that sort of thing to see how how much was present in each carcass uh, we found we could tell pregnant from non-pregnant ewes in dry creek we found we could tell lactating ewes from non- lactating use anytime and we figured that meant if there were a difference, we probably Would should you, have picked yeah. it up, and there was no difference. Uh, so we said, well, so
0: they were getting this the same amount of nutrient. It wasn't a nutritional. It wasn't
1: thing. a nutritional problem, and uh, so we took that to the managers and said, well, I don't think you want to shoot half of them because that isn't the problem. Said, well, what is the problem? Well, the only major difference was there were abundant legal mature rams in the toke area, which was managed for trophy hunting by then. Yep. And very, very few rams older than three quarter curl that we could find in dry Creek,
0: which is going to be like five, uh, three and a half three to and a half four, half four to years four. old. Okay.
1: Uh, so, you know, then using the collar when Jim and Tony were trapping out there, they collared every sublegal ram they could catch as well. So there were 120 of them running around the country mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, we kept watching them and waiting to see where they come back and hiking to see if we could find their remains and stuff. And eventually we were able to construct a survival curve for them. And uh, it looked exactly like the survival curve from Denali Park, except that instead of falling off the the, inf- the mortality cliff at age 8, they started falling off at age three and a half, mm. which puts quite a—you know, if you go to— 20% mortality at age three and a half, you're not going to have as many to shoot no. at age eight as if you'd let them live. Yeah. Which was kind of the rationale about large part of the rationale for the full curl law. Because as you know, we can we can lose, you know, 3% per year from age one to age eight. And we can live with that or we can lose starting at three and a half. We can lose 20% per year and have nothing left by the time you get to six. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, that kind of made logistic sense, you know, but it didn't make intuitive sense. Mm-hmm. If you're going to wait for a ram to go from three quarter curl to full curl, some of them are going to die in between. Yeah. And the idea that survival would be enough better and land production would be enough better, uh,
0: to sustain harvest that, rates. Yeah. You to know, sustain or,
1: harvest rates. And actually we predicted an increase. Yeah. Uh, which we did find after we went to full curl in Dry Creek, you know, harvest went up, up, up for three years. Then there was a bad winter and a population crash and things began to look kind of like they look now.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. And uh, I liked how you described all the, you know, so you, um, why don't you talk? Cause it was seven eighths curl that you guys got initially. And then, and then full curl, because there was some, like, interesting, like, interpretive and just, like... <laughs> well, I just, yeah, that, uh, you know, we we knew when we went to seven-eighths
1: curl that the reproductive weirdness among the ewes in Dry Creek stopped. Yeah. You know, lamb-usher ratios came up. We didn't see two-year-olds leading lambs a month late, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So we, we thought that that change in ram abundance and age had probably fixed the reproductive thing. But... uh We weren't sure, we had no way of knowing about the young ram survival that was predicted to go along with that. So we didn't know what to do, but along comes our buddy, Jimmy Carter. Yeah. And uh, he gave us a a hand, I like to put it, right after he gave us the finger. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The finger part is when he locked up arbitrarily half the sheep hunting in the state. Yep. Well, when that happened, Canada was emerging as the place to go to all sheep hunting. And you know, we had this three quarter curl rule. They had lighter hunting pressure. We did and There had never been much mm-hmm. in Canada. And we were losing economic opportunity because people were going to Canada instead of Alaska. So they said, we got to do something to save our sheep hunting industry. Uh, so the Board of Games said, well, yeah, maybe we ought to do something. I mean, I think they talked to the department more in those days. And I get a direction from the director to say, board of game wants to address this and the board of game didn't write its own proposals. Then they asked professionals to do it. So they said, you write a suite of proposals to go to the board of game. They'll give them the opportunity to solve the problem as they see fit. So I wrote proposals for total all out three quarter curl hunting, no closed areas, no trophy area, no drawing, no nothing. I wrote full curl statewide. Lyman was still kicking around wrote you hunting statewide. Yeah. That, fell off the table pretty quick. Uh, and the board eventually was kind of at an impasse as to whether to stick with three quarter curl or go to full curl, not knowing quite what we know now. Mm-hmm. Well, it was
0: a big risk in a lot of people's mind. It was probably a huge well, risk. Yeah, if
1: you, if you're going to wait a long time you're not going to be able to kill as many. Yeah. And our assumption was that we were harvesting about what was able to be harvested anyway. So it was stuck. And, uh, Stuck in the morning at the board meeting, and that night, Dave Harkness, who is a sheep hero, worked out of Anchorage in 14C in the early years. He's now passed away, like everybody except me. <laughs> uh, you know, went out drinking with Daryl Farman, who was on the board at the time. Smart guy, Kodiak bear guy. Okay. And uh, has a book called Vanishing Bear Tracks or something that's an interesting read. Okay. Uh, so they go out drinking and the next morning within minutes we had a compromise between three quarter and full curl. It was seven eighths Okay, a curl. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh that gave us the opportunity to adjust the harvest regime in our study areas, uh, in a way that we hadn't hadn't had before, which is yeah. how we got from we got seven-eighths curl, which meant more rams, and they were a little older. Fixed the reproductive bizarre stuff we were seeing, but we didn't know about, you know, young ram survival. So, we, you know, we were that way for five years, and you know, learned what you can learn management-wise about harvest and pressure and so forth for seven-eighths curl. And then we, by then, we had seen enough uh, comparisons between Toke and Dry Creek full curl versus three-quarter curl that we said let's go to an experimental hunt for full curls open experimental hunt in mm-hmm. dry creek well that was pretty radical yeah uh, well spe-
0: yeah especially for that area that's just a maximum opportunity type of
1: right and uh, you know the particularly the folks from down south in region 2 which is not a sheep region mm-hmm. most of the sheep live up here yeah uh, but they have kind of a proprietary interest and that's where things started and they're very suspicious of this region at that time as well. It was a really parochial thing. Uh, and we were suspicious of them Yeah, <laughs> in return.
0: They're, they're still, uh, you know, yeah, through a lot of aspects of life, there's still a little bit of territorialness yeah. between the north north side of the Alaska Range and the south. <laughs>
1: and, the you know, the director of the day didn't want full curl either. So, you know, we put in a proposal through the department to go to full curl experimentally and in Dry Creek, well, the department was against it. They, they didn't like it, so they wouldn't let the proposal go. So, Bill Wagerman, whose name you might have heard if you've been around Fairbanks a while, said he'd just take care of that. So he put in a proposal.
0: He was one of the color, like colorful figures of the time, as we still have some colorful figures around Fairbanks. Yeah,
1: <laughs> he was. I mean, he was a, he was a kind of a guide, sheep hunter, a moose hunter. Uh, wolf control funding guy yeah uh, he was always at odds with the department, so anyway, we eventually got the the experimental full curl hunt in dry creek, and it worked out just as
0: that was the one that they were accusing you of writing the proposal for him right <laughs> uh, that might, I don't know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i I may
1: have that a little confused, but uh yeah when when it came time. That worked out very well. We said, "Well, let's try this statewide," and that was really a tough deal. That's the one where they accused me, I think, of voting. Okay, the
0: okay, for Bill. Okay, the I state, okay. I think I may have had that a little. Yeah, muddled. maybe. You no, know, I maybe I mixed yeah. that up.
1: So, so uh, but even, it was a it was a knockdown dragout fight at the board meeting. The public put in that proposal. Bill Wagaman did. And the department was against it because they didn't like the idea for starting. They were afraid it was going to cut down on sheep hunting opportunity. Mm -hmm. And uh, they didn't like Bill Wagaman. Yeah. And they, they were sure that I had put in Bill Wagaman's proposal. So So I got kind of called on the carpet for that. I had to explain to them that uh, I got along with Bill. The the department didn't, but I got along with him and uh, I had to explain to him that if you, if you know Bill like I know Bill you know he doesn't need me to tell him. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody tells Bill what to think. Yeah. <laughs> Bill's the only one involved in that process. Uh but that was a nasty board meeting but eventually the the public did a a better job of presenting the data than the department did of saying this is stupid. That was about yeah. all they could say. So we ended up with full curl for most of the state except for the Brooks range for a couple of years because uh There's always been the lore around, I think we kind of can guess how it got started. The early sheep hunters in the Brooks Range were float plane hunters. They landed on lakes where it was comfortable to land, went up the hill, shot a three-quarter sheep, came back down and came home. Uh, Well, those just don't happen to be areas that produce very good rams, some of them. And they were the ones that got used. And one of the fellows that had sort of pioneered... uh, sheep hunting up there was a was a gentleman a real gentleman named chuck gray who was still with us yep and uh, he told the board "No, nah, that's that won't work up north
0: so well, the brooks had this like and i even heard it starting out as all oh, every well my uncle jerry told me ah, everyone's everyone says the brooks you know small rams up in the brooks yeah. that's all it can produce and but he you know he's like ah, i don't i don't believe it
1: well he was right the uh, you know it was a the that lore got started because of the way pioneering sheep hunters Interesting. hunted up there. You know, when uh, my first job at Fish and Game, Jim Erickson had started a study of sheep horn growth. And uh, he was, you know, then he he died. And he had collected a whole bunch of data, which was a very extensive data set. You know, age, segment length, segment diameter, mm. length, uh, location all kind of that stuff and there was this potload of data i mean huge for that day and my first job was finish the horn growth report well what leadership had in mind was just say sheep grow this big here and this big there and whatever but i thought there was more to it yeah than that so uh, you know how to analyze that much data in those days uh, well obviously you'd Think Thinker computer, so, yeah,
0: <laughs> but not this little one I got in my pocket. <laughs> no, not, not that one that could send man to the moon.
1: Uh, and, you know, but it, you know, it took a while with the computer technology that was available the day, which was, uh, you wrote the equations. You made you made the assumptions. You wrote the equations. You did this. You did that, and then you converted all those predictions to cards by key punching them. Yeah, and then you'd convert that to tape. With some kind of magic. And once that was done, you'd debug the data and then you'd go to this computer, which was an IBM early 360 or whatever, about as big as a Volkswagen bus. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd fire that up, and the tape decks were about as big around as a basketball, and they'd spin one way and spin the other way, and, you know, light would flash, and eventually paper would flow out of there like water going down a little delta. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that took a while and annoyed the bosses that. It was taken longer than they thought it should to Mm -hmm. do that. But in the course of doing that, we had data from across the Brooks Range that wasn't focused on just those early pioneered areas that showed us the Brooks Rangers. You know, it makes typical ramps. There's some places that make great big ones and some monsters and some places that don't do so well.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and all, and that, a lot of that kind of came to the head, came to a head with, uh, with, um, can't remember his hunting partner's name, but the two, the two Ram, well, Marty Webb's Ram that's on the, yeah, on the, that.
1: T-Craft and Marty.
0: Yep. That, uh, just some, just absolutely enormous Rams that they were, you know, there was all, I might, is one of the early sheep, you know, Fairbanks sheep lore stories. My uncle told me about, yeah, cause you know, he's, yeah, they got accused of, of shooting them in the wrangle park and all this stuff. Cause people didn't believe that big rams like that could grow up in the brooks
1: yeah when that happened uh, i got a phone call from dave klein who was mr wildlife up at the university yeah. at the time and he says i just he was a Boone and crockett scorer and the sheep were green at that time and he called me up he says something's wrong he says i just had my hands on the two biggest sheep i ever saw and these guys claim they shot them from the brooks range and everybody knows that it's cold and dark in the Brooks yeah. Range, and sheep don't live north of that, so they're on the margin of their range. Couldn't possibly have happened. So I get in touch with Marty Renio, uh, who was the guy that, uh, Marty Webb and Tarnowski, I think, T-Craft, Paul, mm-hmm. uh, was his name. He's from Tok, I think. Uh, maybe that was not his name. It was T-Craft. That's, yeah. Was his <laughs> name, <laughs> his name was really yeah. T-Craft. He flew a Taylor Craft. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I get in touch with Marty Reno who has the heads, and I go look at them, and they are stunning. And uh, I said, well, I know there's big ramps in the Brooks Range, so I'm not that excited. Mm-hmm. But the Fish and Wildlife Troopers, uh, you know, a guy named Bob Butang, who's recently passed away, It was a crazed sheep hunter as well as a protection guy, as well as a guide at the same time. (laughs) That's an interesting
0: mix. I don't know how he pulled that off. Who am I getting today? Bob and I were pretty
1: good friends. And uh, I said, Bob, how do you pull that off? Are you like double dipping or are you you, you always on a sting operation or what's going on? He says, I'm always on a sting. (laughs) But... uh, Anyway, and he kind of played a role in the Full Curl story as well, mm-hmm. which is in the in the book. Got me in trouble twice. <laughs> uh, but uh, the protection people were sure that uh, these two guys had been up to no good. And they trapped all over Heck mm-hmm. and were good at it. And those the protection people pulled every fur that Marty and T-Craft sealed. Yep. That you're trying to tie them to someplace other than the Brooks Range. Yeah. And they they couldn't. Uh, Eventually, Marty was my neighbor just over here. Uh Oh. And we became friends. And uh, he he once told me, you know, where he got that sheep, which made perfect sense. And, uh, you know, there had been some really nice sheep come out of that general area before and they just found two old rams that yeah. uh, were unusual. Uh-huh. The structure of those particular horns had a kind of a, a fibrous horn material that sort of, there was like string. That went around the curl, not just past it. It was a really unusual huh. kind of way that horn grew, which I had seen in other sheep from that general area. So I was I'm happy with the fact that they were honorable gentlemen. And, yeah, yeah, and, uh, weren't trying to pull anything.
0: But uh, so yeah, fine and it, so the yeah the Brooks was the last holdout for the and it was a couple of years later that mm-hmm. they went that went to full curl. Yeah, and the world didn't magically com- yeah. didn't didn't spontaneously combust. No, after uh, that. <laughs> well,
1: you know, I you know, I had known Chuck and respected him for mm-hmm. years. And I got to him and showed him the data, and he said, well okay i was I might have been mistaken, yeah, and his opposition went away, and there it went
0: nice and then, yeah, and then once everything went to full curl we the the world didn't collapse on itself
1: <laughs> no it's uh, the sheep eventually kind of did <laughs>
0: yeah yeah well that's it well and it's interesting, you know reading reading your stuff and talking to well like we you know saw each other at brad 's presentation." couple of weeks ago you know it's that yeah i mean this the the population situation right now is pretty grim but it's i mean it's a weather it's a weather thing and crashes have yeah. have happened and you know if we want
1: to intervene in an established system yeah you know to meet our goal of maximum use for economy and benefit mm-hmm. which is what management is supposed to be all about there's not a lot we can do there's nothing we can do about the weather yeah other than end fossil fuel and wait Fifty years. <laughs> but it'll probably fix itself away fifty years anyway.
2: Yeah.
1: But the the in cleaning out some old stuff around the office here, I found a report from Frank Glazer. You know, does that ring a bell? Oh you? yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Alaska's Wolfman. I'm
0: gonna have to I'm gonna have to have a photocopy of that.
1: <laughs> the, I shipped it off to Joe Want. Oh, but, gotcha. But Joe will have it. He already had it anyway, so there's an extra copy with a rusty staple in it somewhere.
0: Sounds good.
1: Uh but uh you know, in the, in the late 20s, you know, he walked from Healy to Black Rapids.
0: Yep, where he owned the—at lo- at some point he, in the he 20s, was, he owned you know, the he Black Rapids He was associated Lodge. with
1: Black Rapids Lodge as a meat hunter,
0: yep. a market hunter, for a while.
1: And he had stayed there when he first walked from Valdez to Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he walked from one end to the other, you know, looking for sheep. And he recorded counting 5,000 sheep on foot. Wow. Uh, he went back again twenty years later, and there weren't that many, but there are a lot of sheep. Yeah, and uh, you know now we're in a pickle. But the thing that Frank Glazer, who was a you know he was a pretty elemental guy. I mean he he could. He could read the tea leaves or connect mm-hmm. the dots. He said, "Well, when I walked through there, when there were tons and tons of sheep, there were no wolf signs.
0: When well, he t- in Reardon's book, ta- you know, Reardon through him talks mm-hmm. about there when he, you know, those early years when he was market hunting, said there were sheep everywhere and it was like there were not many wolves and talked right. about caribou and how he saw huge swings in,
1: yeah. in, in. So, if we wanted to intervene in the established system, to try and accelerate all sheep recovery Mm -hmm. we'd go after predators whole hog yeah that ain't gonna happen
0: no Uh, well especially considering some of the predators that do that you know typically have an impact you know golden eagles one and you talk about you know because coyotes you know and you mentioned that like after it's like the delta barley project was it that kind of made a bunch of made a bunch of great coyote habitat and so they did they did a a lot better and uh
1: yeah, they were colonizing anyway. You know, I mm-hmm. remember in my younger days when people would allege that they had seen a coyote. People would go, or you, you saw a German yeah. shepherd or something, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, coyotes were colonizing up this way anyway. There'd always been a few. Uh, Glazer talks about very few coyotes mm-hmm. in his days down that country. Uh, but when we went after the Delta Ag project. We cleared a quarter of a million acres that, as you point out, was terrible. Coyote habitat, it was woods. Mm-hmm. Great fox habitat, yeah. but terrible coyote habitat. And we turned that into open fields. And coyotes, uh, the nature of the clearing project down there was that you know would berm up the stuff, which made perfect rodent habitat. Mm-hmm. And rodents bloomed. We got grasshoppers imported on far, on farm machinery. We had world-class grasshopper plague every other year. You know, perfect coyote. Tons of coyote food, yeah. Yeah, perfect coyote food. And uh, pretty soon we began to see coyotes in Dry Creek, which had never we'd never seen in my yeah. experience. Eventually the, some university students did a study on coyote predation and found that uh, in a typical year, there would be, if rabbits, or excuse me, hares were abundant, the coyotes would kill twelve, twelve and a half percent of the lambs, mm-hmm. which didn't used to be any death yeah. from coyotes. And when hares were not abundant, they'd kill a quarter of them. One in four lambs would die at the jaws yeah. for coyote. So, you know, there's probably some interventional benefit to be reaped if we care.
0: Yeah, or or if you were willing to do what it took to. To have a big impact on them. I mean, the one, the one sheep I killed in the central Alaska range, um, I was cutting him up and had a coyote run right up to me at like 6,000 feet, (laughs) you know, like what the, in my, of course my rifle's sitting 10 feet over there, but yeah, I turn around and there's a coyote standing, you know, from about here to that fan. (laughs) Well,
1: when we were collecting sheep, uh, for that nutritional study, Mm -hmm. you know, the way we would, we finally figured out how to do it. Uh, But before we figured out how to do it, we'd go out there and I'd just have a helicopter drop me off. Yeah. And I would just sheep hunt on foot and shoot four or five ewes and drag them up in a pile someplace where we could pick them up tomorrow with Mm -hmm. the helicopter and take them home. It wasn't unusual to have an entire pile of five sheep disappear. Wow. Overnight you know was walking up to my pile one day and my rifle was on my pack of course and you know came around the boulder and there was a wolf mm no sheep but a yeah. wolf <laughs> and of course the wolf took off running and his belly was like a
0: basket ra- yeah
1: <laughs> and by the time i got ready he was a long ways away and i saluted him a few times
0: and that was it yeah uh-huh. um but it's uh it's interesting you know we like kind of going back to the it, you described really well that what you guys had seen, which was similar to basically what uh, that uh, Valerius Geist, his hypothesis of the age structure and increased mortality. You know, I've seen I've seen people in you know in light of today's current you know depressed weather depressed populations using that as all as uh, an excuse to to close areas altogether and stop hunting even under the full curl regulation. But, and I, I mean. Well, you see, yeah, the
1: the place where I'm familiar with that mm-hmm. is along the Hall Road. Yeah. You know, where a uh, gentleman that lives in Wiseman, you know, has kind of not quite got Val Geis. And he's a guy that, you know, that was very influential in our yep. work. Yep. Wonderful human being.
0: And uh, he recently passed away, too. Yeah, he did.
1: Uh, had the good fortune to go hunting with him in Alberta one oh, time. Oh, cool. A uh, friend of mine that I knew through the Sheep Foundation in the old days kept saying, why don't you come down and go elk hunting? I said, well, I don't Never occurred to me. Yeah. And he kept inviting, inviting, and eventually he, he said, well, tell you what, I've invited you and Val and a guy named Ken Nowicki, who is a writer and alberta
0: or something yeah oh ken don't like me he's uh <laughs> he's an interesting guy he thinks i've killed too many sheep <laughs> he's, he's an interesting guy but anyway uh, sorry not anyway to then, you. <laughs> you know
1: my friend in alberta says uh come on down you know val's going to be here and wiki's going to be here nikki's there just to hunt geese but you and val and i'll go hunt for elk so uh you know we we would uh he had some stands built around this alfalfa patch that he had and that's where we're you know, we're gonna hunt European style. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I I got to spend days, you know, sitting in an elk blind talking to Val Geist. And we'd been friends for you know, forty years by the Yeah. Wow. And what a treat, you know, white tailed deer running all over the place and he's saying, Now see this, this is what that means and a behavioral guy without peer. Uh so fantastic and he's the guy that you know originally came up with the ideas that we tested Mm -hmm. and found to work pretty well
0: yeah but it's uh you know and those were
1: really big ideas and kind of challenging for normal wildlife administrators
0: well it's even it's even tough you know for me to think about and wrap my head around why you know sticking to a furl and i think there's several reasons why sticking to like the full curl regulation as you put it is like the best we can do and that that's not you know hunting hunting sheep or doll sheep under full curl regu- regulation it's it's not going to slow down recovery of the no. of the population and it's you know it's I think you know, it's all this balance between maintaining opportun which maintaining opportunity, especially these days, I think is just critical, you know, as we have opportunity taken and are you on the landscape using it. Yeah, it gets gets tougher to to bring it back. But I, I think I agree. Yeah. And I think any, any any sheep hunter or any person who really cares about sheep would be fully willing to, you know, to not hunt them if that's, if it, if it made a meaningful difference, but it, uh. I think you're right, but it,
1: it won't. No. Those sheep are the full curls that are on the landscape, however, how many or how few of them there are, are, have got a limited lifespan. Yeah. And, uh, we have always been mistaken in thinking that we are harvesting every sheep that's legal.
0: Yeah. Well, and that, and that, that was another point that, that I I think is really interesting. And, you know, I read, I read the proposal that ended up, you know, that the, whatever the, the, the federal subsistence board used to close the central Brooks range. And it's plainly, you know, says as if it's scientific fact up, there's, there's no more mature Rams. They're all gone. And I you know it was I just, I it was, yeah, I better not get into my personal feelings on it or all I'll, I'll start a downward spiral well, spiral they, of
1: rant. But I'll be right behind you. Yeah, probably.
0: it uh, yeah. it was very unscientific, very very debatable, um, and I think, frankly, just not just bogus. You know, there's all kinds of you know I can get into tinfoil well, hat that, speculation. Well,
1: that kind of goes to a A problem that I think is real. Uh, I don't think you just made it up. (laughs) But the the problem that we have is that uh, permission to go on a rant.
0: Yeah, go. No, this. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, the the floor is yours. I welcome it.
1: (laughs) The reason we have uh, the board of game in Alaska, going back to territorial days and statehood, the reason the board of game exists is because prior to statehood. We were getting arbitrary decisions that were not based on anything any biological fact any management relevance that were coming out of washington d c
2: mm-hmm.
1: it was all arbitrary, and we had nothing to say about it so we become a state you know we are given fee simple title which the feds don't recognize anymore to all the animals mm-hmm. and uh, and we established the board of game to for for purposes of conservation and development is what the law says uh well, you know, and what and the law goes on to say what the board can do and a few things that it cannot do. Uh, the rationale was that local folks needed to be able to have input to the regulations. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you know, the assumption on the constitution is that we'll do this on a scientific basis, on the sustained yield basis. You know, for conservation, like you and I understand conservation, mm-hmm. uh, and. There needs to be a public input component to those things, or it's arbitrary just like it was with the feds. Mm -hmm. So we have our board of game. And with that comes the advisory committee system and so on and so forth, which is designed to let the local advisory committee, is designed to let the board of game know what the locals think about any particular proposal. Well, when the feds decided to take over management, What those suckers did was clone our board of game, and only Mm -hmm. they call it the Federal Subsistence Board, and it's not like our board of game at all. Uh, But what they have done with the Federal Subsistence Board, as you pointed out, is they've reverted to the antique, objectionable system that caused us to have statehood in the board of game in the first place, and make arbitrary regulations. Yeah. So this is weird. You know, that's not what we signed up for. But as we've come into what seems to be this depression over sheep or a crisis. Um, we now have our board of game making arbitrary decisions just like the feds yep. did, which they used to do before we got our board of game to keep
0: from doing that. And it's not going to help, help us out at all with no. the federal situation. This, you and that's
1: the, you know, the, the big one for the state there is 19 C game yep. management, you know, 19 C where the board of game, I think is completely out to lunch. Like they I say, their enabling legislation it says what they can do, and it also says what they may not do, and things they may not do are spend money mm-hmm. or commit administration. Well, what could be more administrative than planning to make a plan?
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, that, that's the ultimate administration. Yeah. Let's get together and make a committee to make a plan on how to make a plan, which the board has been down that road before, as you know, mm-hmm. and it was a complete blow-up. Yeah. Huge waste of about a quarter of a million dollars of sportsman's money. Yeah, This time, since they have no budget of their own, they will have to, if they want to have, if the board wants to do a management plan for Game Management Unit 19C, they will have to, as they did in the previous go-around, coerce the department into obligating money to do something the board shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. with money that the board can't spend anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <I> mean,
0: <it's- laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, years ago, which I liked in, in your book that you brought up that sheep hunters have been, have been whining and complaining about certain things. It wasn't maybe in that, in those terms, but, but, have been complaining about this, you know, user conflict. There's, it's hard, it's, you know, hard to find rams, hard to get away from people since the seventies. I mean, it's not a new thing. No. And when I came, you know, I kind of, for a little while was on the, you know, on maybe I don't know, that side of things, but I don't, I kind of have, have come around as I got into sheep hunting you know, like you have some run-ins with this guy and you know, something happens that yeah. pisses you off and, you think, all right, well, this is, you know, this is something that couldn't have been like this in the past. So it's something that's got to change. And eh, like maybe so much, it's my problem. These these days I'm see more of a threat to our opportunity as, you know, I see a lot of the, the complaining as being a lot more of a threat to our opportunity than anything that could benefit the sheep or, um, I think you're right. You know, it's, like yeah, there's you know like 19C. There's areas with a lot of pressure and a lot of, but do, you know I I don't I don't think that removing non-resident hunters from that area is going to help the sheep rebound any quicker.
1: No, it won't.
0: It's and it's going to you know and in, in in following that that whatever uh, line of action or that type of. Buying into that type of thing is just, it's, it's going to make it tougher to resist or, or to roll back some of these federal, these federal closures that are based on the same nonsense. You know, you may, if you have a lot of hunting pressure in area and I, I mean, I I think things, things, you know, caribou herds fluctuate. You know, sheep, you know, sheep have had crashes before. And, stuff and sheep stuff hunters, changes. Sheep hunters fluctuate and sheep hunters, a lot. Sheep hunters fluctuate a Particularly lot.
1: Particularly in that unit out there. Yep. Unit 19C is across Cook Inlet from Anchorage. hmm And the only way to get there is to fly. Yep. And when the weather is bad in the pass, even if you own your own airplane, you can't get there. Yeah. And hunter pressure is, has varied tremendously with the weather. Yep. Over the, over the years. Well,
0: and harvest everywhere, you know, yeah, that like weather, smoke. Yeah, smoke. But it, uh, you know, remove, removing those extra hunters, it might make you feel like you're having a better experience temporarily, but it's not going to do anything for the sheep, you know, you know, according to the, you know, the research you guys did and you're not ever, well, that's something I want to get to in a second, but (laughs) pause myself and and kind of re-drain, re regain my train of thought um you know you're not you, you may in high pressure areas there may not be maybe as many as high of a surplus of legal rams but you're not you're not pulling from in any significant number your younger cohort that's that's coming up you know so no, i don't i, I think I, it,
1: I can't see you know banning a hunter that wants to go sheep hunting from going out to harvest to try yep. and harvest an animal that is insignificant to the overall population. Yeah, uh, you know why? If it doesn't make a biological difference, would you say to hunters you can't go out and enjoy the country? Yeah, you can't go out and
0: camp out because and we think you might have a bat, food you, Because and, we uh, think you might have a low chance of killing a sheep. Yeah, you know, I she, said it. sheep
1: hunting is. Has always been, and, you know, I'd bet you a donut uh, right now <laughs> <laughs> that uh, hunter success this year is not going to be percent hunter success. is not going to be greatly lower than it's ever been.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think you've heard. I think. Was it at the. At the and I
1: think uh, Trooper Rogers kind of intimated. I haven't. I don't don't have access to the data and it's early. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I presume the department still sends out reminder letters. If I get a sheep harvest ticket and don't yep. turn it in, yep. do the, well, you always turn it in, so you wouldn't know.
0: Not always. <laughs> but I, I usually am am uh, am obligated to turn mine in. Uh, I don't know if they still days. send reminder letters or they, not. They'll do. They'll send you emails. And,
1: and you know, the the final hunter participation data won't be in, weren't ever in until the first of the year, right? Mm-hmm. You know, season closes September 20th, but giving people that didn't hunt, and they're the ones that mostly don't report. Uh, So there are always going to be a larger number of people that actually participated than we can see right now. But as bad as we hear it is in 20A across the flats from Fairbanks, I think what I heard from Trooper Rogers was that – the percent success was about what it's always been, which yeah. meant fewer hunters went. Which is exactly what happened after the Anoka shut down. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you figure you're going to have the same number of hunters when everybody knows the resources down, you really don't respect human behavior very much
0: yeah. at all. Yeah, no, and it's yeah. it's it's true. You know, it, there and Brad. Well, from Brad's presentation, um, you know, showed like there's a pretty linear relationship between harvest numbers and hunter numbers, like it's a pretty, over a lot of years, has been a pretty consistent maybe, you know, success rate. Yeah, so I
1: th- I suspect that, uh, you know, oh, you know, I guess it will be next hunting season that the uh, non-residents won't be allowed in game management unit 19C. That didn't take effect this year. Uh, did
0: it? I thought it did take effect this year. Yeah.
1: When it takes effect, there's not going to be a gold stampede of sheep hunters to go over there because no. a it's expensive, yep. b the weather is tough, and c everybody knows there ain't no sheep there.
0: Yep, yep. And
1: uh, and but those that go will probably hunt hard enough that the percent success is maybe going to stay. It's always been unreasonably high for sheep. Yeah, you know, twenty seven percent. Yeah. average success i mean you don't get yeah. that with hair hunting
0: no nope. well and and you know there's all kinds of you know proposals hitting the board a game to push it you know one they already did it with non-residents to one every four years which i i mean why kind of pointless in my opinion um but well, to have residents go do you know to a one every two years one every four regulatory years bag limit yeah. um all these you know all, any all number of proposals yeah. are hitting and it, even Brad
1: was saying, you is, know, that, is there a book out yet?
0: Or not that, not you, that I know of, but you just, have to look
1: at it online.
0: Well, you just, I haven't you seen just these. Know. I'm just, you know, just kind of the word word on the street type of, of thing in these. in to be fair, sheep, those
1: street gossip for sheep is the best source of information. <laughs> <yeah. you're> gonna,
0: <laughs> but uh, it's always run on gossip. Yeah. And that right. stuff has, uh, but that, th- those proposals have come before, but, it, you know, it was interesting, Brad pointed out that there's a very, you know, most sheep hunters, they're, you know, either one, you know, they, they get a ram and quit, she- you know, it's one and done or a couple sheep and um, very few people have an appetite to just keep going at it and just very, very few people kill a sheep every year. Yeah. You're or right. or almost every year. Yeah, so when, it's like it's such an insignificant
1: number that it doesn't it when those proposals would come along when I was along, they've been coming in. you yeah. know, since That's I was, yeah, since <laughs> I was a kid. Uh you know, from Hunter survey data that we conducted in nineteen seventy three and nineteen eighty three. We asked people how often they go sheep hunting, how many sheep they've killed, whatever. And it turned out that you in those days and it was consistent in both of those Hunter participation efforts. Uh, the average sheep hunter went hunting every other year and he killed a sheep once every four years. Yeah. Yeah. That was the average. So, yeah, make one, make regulation to make what's happening happen.
0: Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. No, it's well, Cong- Congress what it, might do that. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, what it boils down to, I think, is people get wherever they enter the sphere at they th- they see this problem that they think's unique to them and their right then and their time period and they feel like there needs to be an immediate fix which you know sheep populations are depressed right now and there's not going to be an immediate fix yeah you know it's just it's not you know you could do whatever the maximum efforts anybody could reasonably or unreasonably could do go shoot.
1: It's, Golden gold eagles out of helicopters yeah, it's but maybe not
0: <laughs> well you know, even if even if you could do the, that the you know there's not going to be legal rams running. you know it's not going to have this huge balloon and sheep population next year no, or two years or 3 years or 4 years
1: um interestingly you know on the the climate change aspect you know as when you look at the coming and going of sheep abundance mm-hmm. in Alaska on a timeline uh, when we maxed out uh, for sheep was when global warming was at its max and glacial recession in Alaska was was at its max. Yeah. Glacial recession in Alaska according to the USGS guy I worked with, you know, quit several years ago. Yeah. 1979. Huh. He says it and uh you know, what if sheep like good weather? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if they don't
0: thrive on Toughen it out yeah (laughs) oh man but uh well and and yeah another thing going back to that you know kind of an arrogance to think that we're pulling out every legal ram which goes back to you know like the horn growth studies and that you know joe wants been recording all the you know these age and, and uh, eight age, recording ages of legal rams taken and showing that there's like every year, there's a significant surplus of rams yeah. that are from all these different areas. And it's yeah. the way that
1: happened, you know, doll sheep are one of the few critters we can actually calculate our harvest rate mm-hmm. from. And, uh, you know, years and years ago, you know, 25 years ago, I said, we ought to get people to put the age of the ram on the harvest ticket. I mean, they're they can do that. Yeah, you know, you don't have to be a
0: rocket scientist. Sheep, yeah. <laughs>
1: you don't have to be a sheep yeah. scientist to count rings. And if yeah. if a mistake gets made once in a while, no big deal. So Joe Want called me up one day. it has been years ago. And he, I think he had a chew a snooze in his gum. Like yeah. Sometimes I "Why? Why is it that nobody's paying attention to the sheep age data that you got on the harvest ticket twenty years ago?" I said, "Well, maybe because nobody cares." Well, Joe had been into harvest data with brown bears when he was guiding on Kodiak mm-hmm. Island, and that's all age-related. Mm-hmm. And he says, has it occurred to anybody that if you shoot a sheep at nine years old, you could have shot him when he was eight and he's still alive? Yep. And he put together this fantastic you know, table that uh, eventually showed that in most of Alaska over time, we have been only killing about 40% of the lambs that got age legal every year.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's, and that even shows even a year like last year, which was a really low, you know, right in the middle of this population depression, the spectrum of what was, what was killed was right in that, you know, a number of seven-year-olds, an overwhelming number of eight- year-olds, and also, you know, like eight, nine-year-olds made up the majority, but then there's a decent amount of 10 year olds, you know, a huge majority or, mm-hmm. or like, you know, what 40 to 60% of those sheep that were killed were nine, you know, nine or 10 years old yeah. and legal the year before too. Um, which, you know, back to the central Brooks range thing, you know, the, was a, I guess it was two years ago. They closed it now. Yeah. Buddy goes up there, takes some pictures. Oh, he must've missed this. He must've missed this one. <laughs> must've missed that one. Well, that's, and to uh, close an area that, especially especially the archery corridor, which is essentially has no harvest. Yeah, well, you know, uh, one every every year or two or three years.
1: Yeah, that's well. It's uh, similar with the forty mile.
0: Yeah. You know. Well, this year, you, know, you right.
1: know, we're going to save one point five rams every year.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's and the the and I want to get into like the fa- the fallibility of aerial surveying. Because, you know, uh, like people can place a lot of weight. And I've even talked to some of the, you know, some of the guys in the department now that, you know, one one year had said, hey, we didn't, you know, we didn't really see any lambs and ewes in this area. Like, I know you're going hunting there. Can you just, just write down if you see. And yeah, like, right from what I saw, things were, you know, the numbers I recorded, you know, they were there. But uh, this Yukon Charlie. Yeah.
1: Aerial surveys are not very good, yeah. <laughs> uh, and,
0: and you know, as you lay out in your book, like you've got a lot of experience aerial surveying and, and cross referencing with data of sheep that you that you had marked and knew lived in this area. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's really
1: kind of embarrassing for the profession when I'm the best there ever was. <laughs> like every biologist that gets in the back of a super cub is the best there ever was. Yeah, but. The very best I could ever do with the best survey pilot I ever knew, which, who died last week, yeah, Bill Lynch. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he was fantastic. Uh, but the best I could ever do was about 67%.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, and I'm always kind of looking askance when they say, well, you know, our aerial survey showed there were only 14 rams. Well, then hunters will go in there and kill 30.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, I mean, it, it, my my hunting partner, he Frank, he was going into an area once. That uh, talked to talked to the the person who surveyed it and said, "Oh, yep, there's I didn't see any any rams in there. There's nothing there." He went in. And he's like, "There's rams coming, rams everywhere." You know, it's it's uh, just a very fallible thing, which you know to this. You know, you had the actual the the Central Brooks range went which went through the kangaroo court of the subsistence board before they I I my by tinfoil hat, i c I'd like to say that I think they had their mind made up before the proposal was ever written. But uh Well it looks good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh uh, you know, the But you're in a you know, when you're
1: into that. And we've I think I don't know. I'd get in trouble for this maybe, but that's all right. Uh, you know, when you get into the point where public input is more important than sound biology. Yeah. The inmates are running the asylum.
0: Well, and I don't think that there was even any like overwhelming public input to support it or the biology to support yeah, it. Yeah. You, know, you know,
1: and, you know, the this business of banning non-residents in the Western, you know, Alaska range, you know. That was, well, there's a special interest involved, the mm. resident hunters of Alaska who want, I don't, I think that story's in the book of how we got involved with that particular interest group. Yeah. The story of Savgas, does that ring a bell with you? Maybe it's well, not in there. I don't know,
0: there. maybe it's not in there. Maybe that was another story. <laughs>
1: well, it's, it, it might be in the fine print in the back of the book. Yeah, uh, I'll have
0: to go pick through that. But
1: what, what happened was this fellow From Fairbanks Nice guy Wants to to go sheep hunting On the north side Of the Wrangell Mountains And he flies down There in a super cub Takes 82 gallons Of Avgas Stashes it in the bushes Off the strip where he lands Comes back to town He's going to go back And use that 82 gallons Of Avgas To do what I don't exactly know Because he surely Wouldn't be flying around Spotting for sheep But uh, he goes back Goes out there And his gas is gone Well he just happens to have stashed his gas in the territory, if you will, of a very aggressive protective guide who flies a super cub. Well, connecting the dots, well, I think my 82 gallons of avgas went through his cub engine. <laughs> and he comes back to town, and he's just got a, an intense dislike of guides. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so he gets together with— uh, a group of his friends, and we all know what a bunch of no-goods guides are. I mean, everybody's got to grump with some guy in an airplane. Mm-hmm. Maybe a guide, maybe not. Um, you know, I'm, you just don't like somebody landing in the drainage far above you when you've walked hard to get there. Yeah. So he comes back to town, he organizes a cadre of about six guys that write proposals to the board of game to shut down guiding. Limit them to 10% of this or that, and they're gave every recipe you can imagine. Well, the Board of Game doesn't know quite what to do about that, so they just table it for several years in a row, and these guys just keep pouring it on. You know, they're writing proposals, writing proposals, writing proposals. Well, by the time the Board of Game is driven to where they have to do something, they've got 100 proposals that these guys have put in over the years, six or eight guys. Well, this is overwhelming public, you know, input. So, you know, they... They coerce the department into spending money on a sheep hunter attitude survey, and it shows And you know, maybe 10 years ago, it shows exactly what it showed in
0: 1973.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because I was— see, They don't want to see anybody, and they're really not very happy about seeing their shadow.
0: Yeah, well, because I—and <laughs> that was the time frame that I was kind of getting, getting involved in it, and I think, you know, I just didn't have the perspective that I had now, and, you know, and— yeah, I just don't i don't, I don't feel I feel a lot. There's a lot more strong about about the you know the importance to maintain our opportunity now than I just don't think. Yeah i I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong about some things for sure at that time. Uh, but going into this, uh, um, I want to say. There's so much stuff to talk about. I lose my train of thought. So, yo, know, so the Yukon Charlie, you know, they, they would go through this whole rigmarole in the central Brooks. And then this year, Matt, you know, their aerial survey that is infallible and they're seeing a hundred percent of the sheep, you know, which even considering a, taking a, a, having a percentage in mind, no one's expecting there to, you know, every, we're kind of, you know, I would expect numbers to be depressed out in the Yukon Charlie too, um, but they, what they, right before, if like four or five days before the season opens, you know, they come up with this emergency proposal to oh, up subsistence. We have to use the subsistence board to close the Yukon Charlie Preserve for sheep hunters, even though you know, based on this aerial survey, even though you know, a the feds do also do their surveys differently than the state does. The area is historically like low low density sheep population sheep are in weird spots down in the trees scattered um and the area has very limited access and only averages one and a half rams per year killed in the whole you know and there's no established subsistence hunt yeah there for for sheep you know so it's it's kind of i think the you know they're showing their hand a little bit more than maybe they yeah, I th- I just think that the sheep, you know, the current sheep status is just an excuse to kind of forward another, you know, a, a uh, regulated I think, agenda. I, don't I, know. I
1: think, you know, I, I agree with you. Give me the hat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you, know, the re- you know, I'm going to say the last five years I worked, you know, my job was to keep an eye on what the feds were doing with the NILCA. Yeah. And... Uh, I've seen more than anybody wants to see, and I I can't say your tinfoil hat is is crazy. I'm not. I'm not totally you're not, crazy. <laughs> not that crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know the evidence is there if anybody cared to look at it. But it's a it's not politically correct. Yeah. To look at it and B it's so enmeshed in the federal bureaucracy mm-hmm. and you know our board of game is caught up in that vortex. And, I mean, it's just the strangest things. I mean, the Nelchina caribou herd is not doing well. Yeah. So we close our season, you know. And uh, then, oddly, our board goes hat in hand to the federal subsistence board and asks them to close their season, which maybe they do. I think they did. They did, yeah. But I'm saying, this is just bizarre. The manager is the commissioner of fish and game. You know, he is in the executive branch of government. Yeah. Nobody quite knows where the board of game fits Yeah. because it's sort of a bastard child. Uh, but I'm thinking, this is a little embarrassing when the manager of Alaska's Fish and Game doesn't even, he's not the one making the ask yeah. of the federal system. It's our board which is making the ask when he should be laying down the lawn saying, you know, the resource can't stand harvest, you know I am closing the season, and we'll be asking our protection people to cite anyone that shoots a caribou in there. Mm-hmm. you know still, we've got this complex thing that we inherited from the days when we thought agencies with absolutely opposite management goals could yeah could share yeah <laughs> it's a it's enough to. Drive you to buy a roll of Reynolds Wrap and get on with it.
0: You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's overwhelming. I mean, and it it makes it tough to to st- even just stay current with what all the everything that's going on, and even even under it's just it's tough to understand in general. You know, you could have a full time job of studying this stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, by the you know by the time you have the the federal law, the state law, the definition of who the users are. The amount needed for subsistence, which, you know, let's ask the guy who's going to benefit how much he needs. Yeah. You know, uh, it becomes such a morass that I just sort of check out and say the Federal Subsistence Board's got got to go away. Yeah. The state needs to assert its management prerogative, and we need to do it on a biological sustained yield basis. Mm -hmm. I, I can't cope with all the confusion.
0: Yeah. No, that sounds, yeah, that sounds like a lot simpler.
1: Uh, it needn't be that
0: complex. Uh, no, I don't think so. But yeah, you know, you, it, I don't think, it doesn't take, I am a pretty, <laughs> I'm kind of a knuckle dragger. I'm a pretty, pretty simple person. But when you could look at all this stuff and just say, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't add up. This doesn't add up. This doesn't add up to, yeah. to, you know, you 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 run out the equation and the and you know the answer you get is not what's what's being yeah. what's happening
1: yeah with the you know the you know I'm all for local input mm-hmm. but and that was great with the board of game when Alaska used to be big, yeah Alaska isn't big anymore, you know used to be there's the whole state, say for sheep hunting, mm-hmm. was pretty much open, and it really didn't matter if a guide out in the Wood River didn't want other airplane hunters in there. Yeah. You know, he said, ah, there was just an insignificant place, so we'll establish a controlled use area where you can't go in there with an airplane. Yeah. Or whatever that area is about. Well, you know, that was a special interest deal by a guide who's operating out there and was looking out for himself. Yeah. Through the board of game. Well, well yeah. and
0: some of the hall, road, you know, some of the, the hall road regulations are right. special same, interest.
1: Same way. And, you know, when you overemphasize the local interest and you underemphasize the general interest, when Alaska isn't as big as it used to anymore, basically what you've done is you've balkanized the management, the regulatory process to where every little unit or subunit or local area gets its own preference. Yeah, And the Hunting reg book gets fatter and fatter and fatter, and the opportunity gets slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. Yep, And it doesn't bode well for the future of hunting, I think.
0: Nope. I'm trying to think of a way not to end on a a grim note. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it's been, yeah, it was, that was... uh, well, I could just tell you a story. Yeah, tell me a story. Tell me a story. Uh, well, I'm struggling here, obviously. Yeah, well, the, <laughs>
1: <laughs> this, is a, this happened to me, like outdoor life or whatever. But uh, was that the one where this happened to yeah, me? Yeah, this happened to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, back in the day when we were just beginning to reinvigorate predator control mm-hmm. in 28 to help the moose, a fellow from NBC News, a guy named Jack Perkins, comes up here to do a story on the pipeline, which was kind of a story at the same time. And... Uh, he shows up at the department and says, I think there's uh, something going on with wolf hunting. What's that about? And he talks to the regional supervisor, Bob Hinman, for a long time. And Bob explains to him what it is. So uh, he's looking for some He says, well, I'm going to get in a helicopter and go out and take some pictures of wolves. Anybody want to go along? And nobody would go near the guy. Yeah. But I hadn't seen a sheep for quite a while. I said, you know, what are the chances you're going to get in a helicopter and find a wolf? Yeah. Take a picture of just flying over there We'll be in sheep country I'll say, well, let's go look at a sheep So I said, I'll go with him I'm kind of naive anyway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we get in the helicopter and we take off We're flying out over the flats And I'm saying, well, you know, here's a grease spot See those ribs sticking up out of the snow and all that stuff That's mm-hmm. where a wolf got killed Oh, here's another one over here You want to go down and take a picture of that? Nah So we're just heading We're getting closer to the sheep country And I'm, yeah. this is working <laughs> for me <Yeah. laughs> He didn't want to stop And darned if we didn't blunder onto a pack of wolves so, you know, they, you know, his videographer was there and they went, went around and took a picture and, you know, one wolf was, it was, snow conditions were, you know, hard and soft. Mm-hmm. And this wolf was just grabbing for ground, you know, yeah. on the hard stuff. He was really stretching out. He hit some soft, soft stuff and he just went end over end. you know. <laughs> and he um, went around a couple of times and said, okay, that's enough. You know, I don't want you to, you know, two passes is all you get. Yeah. So, well, he was satisfied. He didn't want to go see his sheep. So we're on our way back to town. And, I'm, you know, we're talking on the intercom, and I said, hey, uh, Jack, you know that a helicopter is just 5,000 pieces of flying in close formation. Yeah. And, you know We're near, near, near death right now. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on with this machine. We're near death. Now, considering that we are near death, I want, would like to have your promise on near death time, that you're not going to take this footage and screw us, because you are NBC News. Yeah. He says, no, we just report the facts, so yada, 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 and so we we get to town. You know, a week or so later, I just happened to be watching the NBC News, and here's Jack. He's standing in front of the bank building where it says 40 below, talking about the pipeline, and he says, oh, and then there's this wolf business going on, and uh, he's talking a little bit about it being a controversy, and the video, you know, switches oh, nice. from... Where he is standing by the bank to this wolf just grabbing for ground on the hard stuff, and he says quietly, "This is a filmic representation of what it would be like if this program goes through." They freeze the frame. They dub in a shotgun blast oh, as geez. the wolf goes end over end in the soft no. snow. Oh,
2: jeez.
1: <laughs> oh. Oh man. Well, that's- but the, the rest of the story is that eventually I'm watching the news one time, and you know Jack continues to be a reporter, and he's interviewing a guy at. A tuba players convention and this guy is saying, well we have classical music written for the tuba and this is symphony you know, he's he's really into the sophisticated thing and he's talking about to professional tuba players and music for the tuba especially written by composers and stuff and Jack says I always thought the tuba was just the big dumb oompa of the band and the guy says I think that makes you the big dumb oompa of interviewers
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's, uh, no, that's quite, that's quite the story. I go, I was interviewed by a guy from NBC news when, uh, I can't remember which iteration of the, the, the federal, when the feds were either mad that, that, the regulations got rolled back, or when they're trying to implement the, you know, the the bear bait. It was a kind of a suite of bear baiting um traditional use. Oh, that rules. business up
1: in the park and in where they they banned customary and traditional.
0: Yeah, well, means this of take in it, it like because it, one iteration, it was all park service and refuge land statewide the latest one is the park service in particular trying to re-implement it. Um, but it was one of these iterations. I can't remember which, cause every time an administration cha- has oh. been changing it flip-flops, but, uh, they, you know, the guy was kind of had read, uh, was it was C- maybe CBS did a story, you know, the whole, you know, hunters are scattering donuts in the wood to kill sows with cubs. And, you know, one of those yeah. type of narratives, And he actually seen, you know, the story was much more reasonable. You know, I kind of had told him the same thing. I don't think he screwed me, but, you know, I just was very plain, like, no, like this is explaining how things really are. And, you know, like denning black bears is a very traditional practice in this specific area. It's not like everybody's going out and doing it. Just basic stuff that gets... it's not going to harm the population. No, stuff that just gets you know, exploited for maximum, you know, by, by lower 48 interest for maximum impact to let, you know, let, to garner support for whatever the feds are yeah. wanting to do, but fundraising, we call it. fundraising. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a big thing. But, uh, yeah, that was my, that's been my one interaction with it. They actually, well, it was a guy that contracted a photographer that I know he's done work for the paper, but, um, came up and shot some, they included pictures of Fleshing, I, mean, I was fleshing a black bear hide. You know that day when he came up, and that was actually pretty fair. But uh, so, do you have your book for sale at all? I'm a marketing
1: failure. <laughs> I, I may be a failure as an author, but I'm certain I'm a marketing failer, failure. Failure. Uh, I don't know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I there's a website weinheimer.com yep. Where I think. You can get in touch with me by email and purchase a book. Okay, you know the I'm asking fifteen bucks for the book. It's not a very big book. It doesn't no. have any pictures. No, but it's it's uh, it's
0: uh, a lot of really cool and you know great historical context. You know, like you said, because uh, what you know, I mean, you say it kind of prompted you to write it. Is hearing people talk about why. This regulation, you know, the full curl regulation was implemented or that yeah. it, without, re- you're like, hell, I was like the Elmer Keith. Hell, I was there. That wasn't <laughs> the reason.
1: <laughs> oh, you, you know, you mentioned Elmer Keith. Uh, Elmer Keith was, of course, an old older gun writer, mm-hmm. believed in practical bullets and slower stuff and bigger calibers. And he wrote a, a biography eventually. And then The Hell, I Was There is the title of his yeah. book because uh, he was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i that, just stole that from him no
0: that yeah. was that was great it was in and definitely applicable but yeah do you have do you have any messages for sheep hunters today i mean kind of your out outlook on well there's a a
1: line in the book somewhere i think it's sort of in the introduction that says you know just because sheep populations are depressed we don't have to be Mm-hmm. And we don't have to depress each other with it either. <laughs> so I, I'd say, you know, if you, want, if, you, if you want to go sheep hunting, go. Yep. You know, hunt hard, enjoy the country, enjoy the challenge. You may find the ram of your dreams or you may not. And, uh, you know, there's more, to, there's more to the mystique of sheep hunting and knowing sheep Mm-hmm. than there is in pulling the trigger on a big one.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Well, that's a great one to end it on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you enjoy Tundra Talk, I appreciate it if you leave a good review on Apple iTunes or whatever other platform you, platform you listen on and tune in next time. Thank you. Thanks, Wayne.
1: You bet.